I don't typically talk, talk about current affairs. There's a reason for that. Um, because you usually lose when you talk about current affairs. Because um, everyone has an opinion. Uh, and also, an argument can be made that if you start talking about current affairs too much, that you miss kind of the deeper spiritual truths of the Bible that we should all be taking in. But Jesus himself used current affairs to try and make points. In Luke 13, he talks about the Tower of Siloam that fell on a bunch of people, killing, uh, killing several of them. And he, and he really is asking his disciples, was there something about those people different than you that that tower would fall on them? In other words, does your worldview really say that uh, there's kind of a Christian karma out there, and if you do bad, then, then that's why bad things happen, uh, and if you do good, good things happen. So you can look at misfortune and really see kind of God's judgment in that, almost on a one-to-one correlation. And, and Jesus is saying, that's not the case. Um, but take heed because the world is messy, it's messed up, and there are spiritual realities everywhere, and so we need to recognize those things, lean into them, and try to seek to turn our eyes toward heaven and what God would have for us. And so, um, I'm going to pray here in just a minute, but I, uh, I want to just talk like a family a little bit and, and interact a little bit with current affairs and just talk about how I'm learning through some of these things. What I'm hearing, what I'm learning, and how I'm being challenged. And so I pray that uh, hopefully you'll hear it in the spirit in which it's being offered uh, and not as political statements or, uh, or anything of the like. Um, but I offer just some of my reflections um, in humility. And so I, I invite you to pray along with me, actually, uh, and maybe even for me. Uh, and then we just ask God's blessing on this time. Father, I pray that your perspective and your will would, would be what transpires in this, this sacred space, this consecrated space, this space that right now, this morning, is set aside for your purposes. I pray that you would help us realize there's no sacred and secular divide, that there are some spiritual things that we do, and we go check the check boxes, and then we run back to normal life, but that it's all interwoven, and everything somehow, some way, is spiritual. That you see it all, that you care about it all, it's your creation, and we're your people. And you have intentions and desires for all of it, that it would reflect your beauty and your glory that shalom would happen here, peace would happen here on earth as it is in heaven. That we would understand that sometimes what's going on is bigger than our own perspectives and our own feelings and emotions and experience. So please do just help us discern truth in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So... Um, I've been learning a lot. I've been learning a lot. And one of the things uh, I've been learning is, is that I don't know very much. That my knowledge is limited. But I think even more than my knowledge being limited, my perspective is limited. 
My perspective is unique to myself. I understand where I stand on almost everything. I understand that little slice, that point of view. I understand how the world feels to me. I understand my own pain and my own confusion and my own depression to a much greater degree than I understand anything else going on out there. I don't think that's unique to me. I think we all understand our own suffering and our own pain and our own frustration, our own depression, our own loneliness. Um, we, we're more acquainted with that. We feel it deeper than anything else that happens out there. And I think that's why most of our prayer begins from that place, from our experience, from our pain. Maybe that's not true for you. It is for me. Most every one of my prayers starts there uh, and then goes forward. And I'm beginning to realize there's a big danger in how I often pray. And the danger is that without realizing it, I think I'm trying to align God to me. That I'm starting with my experience and my need and my pain and I'm, I'm going to God and trying to align God that he would incline his ear, that he would bend down and come, come find my perspective on things and then be able to act to rectify or to, uh, to change or to heal or to fix what's going on in my life. I, I think this is true. We see it in the Psalms. A lot of times it starts from pain. We see it in Job. Job chapter 10 is really interesting. Um, he gets to the point where finally he cannot just sit with what is happening anymore. And, and then chapter 10 says this, I loathe my very life. So therefore out of that I will give free reign to my complaint and speak out the bitterness of my soul. And I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me? I think it's human nature to start there with our felt experience, our first person experience. Jesus does something revolutionary in Matthew when he talks about this, uh, about how we're supposed to pray. And I think to really see the, the magic, if I can use that word in a sermon, um, the magic of what Jesus is doing here, the kind of how revolutionary this is when he's teaching the disciples how to pray, we have to set it against how we normally pray. Does that make sense? I think we, we, we teach it so much verse by verse through Jesus' prayer and talk about the formula, but we don't set it against what we would be doing with prayer if we weren't praying Jesus' way. And so we try to align God to, to our cry, and I think that's human nature. I don't know that that's wrong necessarily, but when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says this, when you, when you pray, when you pray, this is how you should pray. <clears throat> Chapter 6 of Matthew. Our Father in heaven hallowed or holy or set apart or consecrated be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. So Jesus starts by trying to incline us or align us with God rather than the other way around. There's something, I think, revolutionary going on there. And what follows immediately after that is, is very telling too because once we've inclined ourselves to God, what we're inclining ourselves to is a bigger picture, a, a broader experience, a bigger take on the world where our own individual felt needs are not the only thing being thought of, but other people's or a broad group of people or the whole world's needs are being thought of from God's perspective who cares about all of it. Not just my own depression, but depression as a category and the fact that people suffer from it across the world. Not my own persecution as a Christian, that business people won't take me serious. That really bugs me. I'm not a real leader. Why? Well, because you're a pastor. That's persecution to me. Um, you, you, you know, if I really descend into that, I can get bitter until I start thinking about real persecution. Little kids losing their lives or men being killed, women being kidnapped as sex slaves, um, land being seized because of people's faith, because they claim to follow Jesus. And, and so when I come out of my own petty kind of felt experience, and even some of some of it that's real, right? Um, I get my first bout with cancer now. It's a small one. I, I have skin cancer on my nose. So I get to go have a surgery, and I'm trying to figure out how much of my, my nose I get to keep, right? Um, and, and maybe I'll look a little different. Um, given my starting point, I could look better. Um, but that's a, pretty minor, that's a pretty minor thing compared to other people's bouts with cancer. And so whenever I, I jump out of my own spot to see the world a little differently, a little bit more like God sees it, then I begin to say, okay, so God, what are we going to do? What do you want me to do? How do I fit into this? And the very next thing is my wants, wishes, and desires are modified accordingly. So God, give me my daily bread. Please sustain me. Give me what I need. But I know that if I'm, if I'm trying to put your will first, my, my ultimate comfort or my privilege or my power or my wealth is not going to be your dominant concern, God. Your dominant concern is going to be a lot bigger and a lot broader and a lot more about justice and equity and fairness and righteousness than it is about me um, competing well against the masses of humanity and winning so that I can take it easy the rest of my life. So give me just what I need. Take care of me because I'm aligning myself to do your work with your needs. This was a really big revelation for me um, way back when Antioch started and we did a human rights series and we were talking about uh, gender violence in the world. We're talking about gender violence in the world, um, which for me, having four daughters, it's not hard for me. It's a pretty short step for me to begin to, to understand God's fatherly feelings into that, that issue. That's my connection into it, is really as a father of four girls. 
Um, but I, begin to, I began to realize that when you really talk about the worst to the worst of that experience, you're talking about people who cry out to God um, and, and, and he's the only one hearing their cries and the only one seeing their tears. That they're somewhere foreign, maybe held captive, and, and they're crying on a nightly basis and God hears their cries uh, and God sees their tears and he's aware of that. As it's happening, God is aware of those cries real time. Those cries are going into God's ear. And I began to realize, just like when I have a daughter who's got a broken arm and the other kids are whining because they've been sitting in the emergency room for two hours, that God balances out those competing things um, the same as I do as a dad. That God is aware of the pain of people being oppressed or vulnerable people as, as they're crying out to him. He's aware of that simultaneously as he's aware of me complaining about somebody not treating me fairly or gossiping about me or the fact that I had hoped to make more money or hoped that my expenses wouldn't have been as high as they would, or that I would have gotten more rest on a vacation, or that I might have. And so God, please intervene on my behalf because I just really need your help. And what I began to realize is um, God hears those things in one in one ear and in my prayer in the other. And I began to ask the question, do I sometimes pray prayers that are dissonant in the mind of God? Out of step in the mind of God, given what he's hearing and where his thoughts are with regard to what's going on in the world. I, I polarized this and then had someone draw a picture for me and I put it in my book. And it was a 16-year-old girl held in a, in a brothel in Southeast Asia with the bubble going, God, dot, dot, dot. And then on the other side, a 16-year-old girl, an upper middle class, laying on her bed, going, God, I hope Dad buys me a Mercedes for my 16th birthday. Please, please, please. And that was just to, to show how prayer could be coming at God from such different places. Does that make sense? Now, that doesn't mean that um, all of my, my needs are bad or that all of my privilege is, is bad, but it modifies how I think and how I pray when I understand that this is the conversation going on in God's mind. Now I say, God, I am really tired. And I know that sounds petty, but I don't feel like I'm able to love my kids the way I should or pastor the way I should or have enough bandwidth to really go beyond or, or go the extra mile to help others. I feel limited. And so if it's your desire, God, would you please energize me or provide rest or bring times of refreshing for me? But whatever I receive from you, whether it's fatigue or energy, just know that my life is yours. I'm committed to you. I want to do your will with what I have. But that's my request. Or God, I know this is probably petty and it's not like the other injustices in the world, but I just can't forgive this person I can't get over it. I think about it in the shower. I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it. It really hurt me. And I know it's petty, but it did. 
So can you please just help me through the power of the Holy Spirit, either give me perspective or give me the strength to let go of it or give me the, the ability to go right at it and to go talk to that person or, or to understand where they were coming from um, because I do know that hurt people hurt people. And so if there's something I don't know about their life that would help me digest it a little bit better, please help me see that. If there's a mentor in my life, someone older or wiser that could coach me through this, bring that person. But I know this is small. But this is preventing me from following you. I just can't seem to get over it. Would you speak to that, Lord? Or God with my finances, or God with my pain, or God with my whatever. It is real. It is my experience. Um, but I want to be liberated or redeemed from this or that you would somehow be able to use that pain to help others. So give me even that eye to see how my pain might actually be the thing that you're bringing into my life purposely so that I would have the platform to minister to others. And if that's the case, if this is a thorn in the flesh, please let me pray once, let me pray twice, let me pray three times. But then after the third time, let me accept it in faith and not continue to ask you to remove it if you choose to leave it there. But do you see how we can, we can pray the same prayers but have them be in concert with the conversation going on in God's head? Do you see the difference there? And I've been learning a lot about what maybe that looks like um, given the way the world is framing itself up today. I, I've, been, I've been really, especially in the last couple weeks, trying to understand the world from different people's perspective. Um, my daughter, we were at camp, um, Ashland, five and a half. Um, it would take me hours to explain Ashland to you. Um, but so we brought her, it's the first time with the like camp counselors, right? So we're, it's not childcare, but now it's the counselors. Um, and she came back that night and just was really bothered. And then finally she said it. I don't understand why those people would be camp cancelers. Why would they want to cancel camp? <laughs> and so we're like, no, 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 no. It's camp counselors. Camp counselors. She's like, oh, okay. So then the next night she comes back. It's strange as all get out. And she's positive, and she says, I really appreciate those camp counselors. It's pretty neat that they think everybody counts. <laughs> and, we, and we just let that one go. Because um, it seemed like a positive message. But her perspective on the world was just so different than what we assumed would be her perspective. We assume so much of, of the world and how people see it. I got to speak a week ago at a church in Berkeley. It was an African-American apostolic tradition church. Okay? Um, I was preaching, and they started doing call and response and egging me on and, and all that. And I couldn't get the rhythm because they're... I learned this about call and response. There's a cadence to it. And so you kind of have to like give and take. And I was just trying to teach. And it couldn't figure out how to start and stop with their, with their kind of rhythm. 
And so finally, I just, I just said the obvious, you know. I mean, the best thing to do with awkwardness is just to put it on the table. And so I was just like, I'm sorry. I, I'll do my best. You guys, don't, don't let me throw you off. You just keep doing what you're doing. Like, I'm loving it. I, I'll, I'll try and figure out the rhythm here. Um, but it taught me something about culture. It taught me something about different people's experience. It taught me something about traditions. As my daughter with an African-American girl her same age were dancing at the front of the altar and that that was celebrated. And there was something so worshipful about that for me. Um, and we get locked into our traditions, don't we? And we don't readily or easily see beyond that. And I, I've said it before when we take communion, there's something fascinating when, when God tries to tell us to do justice to the foreigner or the immigrant, he always says, for you were slaves once too. Remember, you were strangers once too. There's something about empathy. You have enough experience that if you try, you can put yourself in these people's shoes, says God. So remember this and leverage that so that you would understand the experience of others better. Empathy literally is two Greek words, and pathos, that you would enter into the suffering or the passions of another person. I want to read something from C.S. Lewis. It's the, he wrote it, most people don't know this, but Lewis is well known in three different categories, and if you talk to anyone that knows him in one category, they don't norm normally know him in another category. Um, but he was a children's fiction writer. He also wrote really meaty and hard-to-read Christian apologetics books. Uh, but then he was also a, a, a world-class scholar and literary critic. And, and um, this book called An Experiment in Criticism is his book on literary criticism that he wrote for his students at Cambridge towards the end of his career. And at the end of this book, he finishes it this way. And it really, to me, expresses all of C.S. Lewis's genius and, and why he was so good at, at fiction in writing children's novels, that he really valued point of view and empathy in understanding things from all angles and all directions. And he says this, he says, those of us who have been true readers, those of us who have been true readers all our life, seldom fully realize the enormous extension of our being which we owe to authors. We realize it best when we talk with an unliterary friend. He may be full of goodness and good sense, but he inhabits a tiny world. In it, we should be suffocated. The man who is contented to be only himself and therefore less a self is in prison. My own eyes are not enough for me. I will see through those of others. Reality, even through the eyes of many, is not enough. I will see what others have invented. Even the eyes of all humanity are not enough. I regret that the brutes cannot write books. Very gladly would I learn what face things present to a mouse or a bee, and more gladly still would I perceive the olfactory world charged with all the information and emotion it carries for a dog. Literary experience heals the wound without undermining the privilege of individuality. There are mass emotions which heal the wound, but they destroy the privilege. 
In them, our separate selves are pooled and we sink back into sub-individuality. But in reading great literature, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself. Like the night sky in the Greek poem, I see with myriad eyes, but it is still I who see. Here, as in worship, in love, in moral action, and in knowing, I transcend myself and am never more myself than when I do. There's something that happens at the Antioch um, staff meetings whenever there's a really highly charged political thing that happens. I'll usually walk in and I'll say this, hey, um, I don't care where you stand on an issue. I pray that you think it through. I don't care where you stand, but be very, very careful what you say on social media. Because there are people that have a different viewpoint than you do. Um, and you represent the church, and you represent Christ, and you need to be very careful that you don't present yourself as a stumbling block, that you have enough empathy to understand two sides or, or many sides to a story. And so we try and talk about some things that way, just saying, would you listen? Would you learn? Would you try to understand? I have a lot of African-American pastor friends, um, several that emailed me personally, several that emailed lots of pastors, and I was on the email threads. And they were wondering who in evangelicalism, what pastors in evangelicalism would see, care, and understand about the conversations they're having this morning as individuals, as black Americans, as pastors or leaders of black communities. And they're just looking for some people that would understand their experience. And you see, their experience isn't just about one instance. It's about a pattern. It's about the fact that on a monthly basis, there's a new story of someone who gets choked to death or a young girl that knocks on a door looking for help and gets shot with a shotgun because the man in the rich white neighborhood was scared or another person who wasn't armed that gets killed. And it doesn't matter the particular. For them, there is a pattern of violence and they're scared because it's a different experience for them than it is maybe for some of us. You see, I've, I never had a talk growing up with my dad where he said to me, Ken, you have to be very careful in this world. If you get pulled over, you need to show your hands. Even if you're treated wrongly, you can't respond. I was never given that talk. But I've yet to meet an African-American father that hasn't had that talk with his son. It's called the talk. I've yet to meet um, an African-American pastor who doesn't lament the fact that when he's out of his neighborhood, he gets pulled over. Because you see, his profession or, or any of the things that go with that don't matter in some neighborhoods. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm against law enforcement. Law, I know I have plenty of friends in law enforcement that do very difficult jobs and they're scared about these situations because they're saying it's hard to do what we do and things happen very fast and we're trained in certain ways and it's very difficult and we need prayer too and we need support too and that's not 
um, at all what I'm disparaging. I'm just talking about the reality that race was the original sin of America. And there's something interesting about original sin. It doesn't go away. I have original sin in me. And I've been saved by the blood of the Lamb and I've been redeemed. But do I still sin? I do. Do I sometimes have racist thoughts? Do I live in a, a culture that has racist thoughts? Do I sometimes take advantage of, of structures and systems that are bent certain ways? Unfortunately, I think sometimes I do. And we have to learn how to talk about this. Or there are Christian brothers and sisters that we will radically misunderstand because their experience is different than ours. Do you know that in America, we have 8% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's inmates? It's not because we have 25% of the world's criminals, but it's because we have a policy of being tough on crime. That means even nonviolent crime. Do you know that there are more African Americans in jail today than there were slaves at the time of the Civil War? Do you know that in the state of Colorado and Washington, there are white businessmen making millions of dollars selling tons of marijuana? That there are tens of thousands of black young men in jail for selling small quantities of? It's a difficult situation, but we don't know the history. Do you know this is fact? I'll just read the direct quote. In the spring of 1921, Williams and Manning, two white guys that, it, that were holding uh, under peonage, which is a form of indentured servitude, uh, they were holding black uh, men in that kind of uh, bondage. And when the authorities came looking, they went and killed all the black uh, people they had as indentured servants so that there wouldn't be any evidence. Um, so in the spring of 1921, Williams and Manning each faced an all-white jury in a Georgia state court. Both were found guilty and given light, life sentences. It's pretty cool, right? It's the next sentence that's pretty, pretty troubling. Within a, uh, Williams was the first southern white man since 1877 to be indicted for the first-degree murder of an African-American. So 1877 to 1921, only one white person convicted of killing an African-American person. Gets worse. It would not happen again until 1966. So from 1877 to 1966, there were only two murder convictions for white men who killed African-American men. If we don't understand the history that other people know and understand, then we can't understand how they're experiencing or interpreting or responding to events. We look at it and say, man, it's a very complicated case in Ferguson. We don't have autopsy reports. We don't have all the details yet. So why all the rioting? Why the looting? Why are people flying there to, to be a part of these demonstrations? Um, this morning I talked to my two oldest kids. I said, hey, let's do something. Let's treat mom today as if it's Mother's Day. But let's not tell her. Let's just treat her as if it's Mother's Day. 
It's a cool idea, right? Um, they didn't really get into it. <laughs> so here's the takeaway. Sometimes things need flashpoints or events or centers of gravity to make them work. We think this situation in Ferguson is about one killing and the response afterwards. In African-American churches around the country today, as they talk about this issue, it's about so much more. And this is a flashpoint, an instance, regardless of autopsy, to have a conversation about their felt experience or their pain or even sometimes their rage that is a different experience than I had. I grew up, um, I had a wonderful childhood, by the way. My parents go to this church. I think they're here this morning. Um, part of my childhood was in Europe, and I got to travel Europe and, and be in the Swiss Alps and, and take pictures and, and uh, ice skate on Dutch frozen canals. I mean, how, how picturesque is that? My parents cared about my education. I came back to the States. Um, they had me in different schools. They cared about it. My dad had different opportunities. He's a hard worker and had different opportunities to take different jobs in the military, and he always chose based on where the school system was. He had a choice to take forced retirement or to go take a job assignment in the, in the Navy and chose retirement because he didn't want to bring me and my sister while we were in high school um, to a certain school district in the South. My dad cared about us. I was, the ben I was the beneficiary of that. I look back at it now and think I took a, uh, I really took advantage of it. But my dad paid for my undergraduate degree. I didn't understand what a privilege that was. I do now. I had a certain upbringing. And I've told Tamara on a handful of occasions, because I honestly believe this, if I had have grown up as an African-American man, I think I would have been a Black Panther. I think I would have been filled with a lot of rage, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fighter by nature. Injustice bothers me by nature. I would have responded, I know, not in, in, in a peaceful, nonviolent way, a la Martin Luther King Jr., etc. I can't be aware of that on one hand and simultaneously on the other hand have certain expectations for how people are going to respond to their experience or to the fact that in different ways the scales are tipped wrongly toward them. So I'm trying to listen and I'm trying to learn. And I'm not trying to take sides with anyone or be against anything. But I'm trying to understand what it means to live in solidarity with Christian brothers and sisters going through different experiences. Tamara and I sat in a Harlem hotel or a restaurant this week. I was invited to speak at, a, at an African-American leaders conference. That was an interesting experience. And that was while this was going on. Interesting experience. But for dinner one night, we were out, and our friend Jeremy Courtney, he's been here twice, 
has the ministry Preemptive Love Coalition in Iraq. Do you guys remember Jeremy? His ministry is an hour away from the fighting. He's in the, the Kurdish area of Iraq. So in other words, the fighting is the distance from here to Prineville for him. And they're trying to take care of refugees. And some of the kids and families that they've done life-saving life heart surgeries for have been displaced or even lost their lives. And, and he was in New York because he was on uh, NBC and CNN and Fox News and a whole lot of things as somebody to give kind of firsthand account of what's going on. Their office is still open there and working. And so he met us for dinner and was sharing about his experience of being near burnout, but looking at his brothers and sisters in Christ who have lost everything and realizing no matter how close to burnout I am, I have nothing to complain about. And I'm sitting there looking at Jeremy and going, I have nothing to complain about. And there's perspective and I'm trying to listen and I'm trying to think and I'm trying to learn. So last night, I, knowing that there would be people that would walk out of church this morning, um, and knowing there would be people that wouldn't show up to church this morning, I penned a prayer onto my Facebook page. Broke the rule that I tell our staff because there are a lot of African-American leaders and friends that I have that are wondering who out there understands or cares or feels about how we're processing events. And if I chose to just remain silent because it's easy and comfortable and non-threatening to me, what does that communicate as a Christian brother to them? So I tried in humility to just write a prayer to say, are we praying for those people in Ferguson? Are we praying for the moms? Are we praying for the dads? Are we praying for the Christians there that are experiencing this all aspects of it differently than we're experiencing it. I also had the experience, because so where I'm going with all of this is prayer. Prayer that aligns myself with God rather than seeking God to align himself with me. There's a confession I have to make. Um, Antioch has done a bad job of keeping up with Mike and Ann Mara as our missionaries in Kenya. And it's my fault. And I didn't realize it until they came back on furlough. I partly think that without realizing it, when they left, I felt like I was being left or we were being left. So what's there really left to do other than to claim them as our missionaries? We have these great giants of the faith out there on the mission field. Aren't we cool as a church? We live it out. Look at the examples of the people from our congregation. But I didn't understand it the way Mike and, and Ann were experiencing it. They were experiencing it literally as if they could not continue another day at times. And what they needed from us was that we cared enough to get into their lives, to ask questions to, to take the initiative, not to be the follower, but to be the leader, to be the one with the strength and the energy 
and to care and to validate um, and to hold them up in prayer. And I realized in talking with them, and they were so gracious about a lot of this, was that I had failed them. And I realized I'd failed them because my theology was deficient. Because it was starting with me. It wasn't starting with where God is at, understanding the world, what's going on in the world, and the experience of other people juxtaposed to my own felt needs or my starting point with prayer. And I think if I had tried to understand things a little bit bigger or been a little bit more assertive or a little bit more mature as a leader and pushed for conversations, I would have been able to understand the experience of some very dear people to me and done a much better job of supporting them or leading us in how we supported them. But they taught me a lot about prayer and what it looks like on the mission field and how important and vital it is for missionaries. And so I thought, we all need to hear that. So I'm uh, going to ask Mike and Ann to come up. And I want them, I've asked them just to share about prayer that we might listen and learn and then collectively that our, our understanding or our theology of prayer might be in some small way shaped um, by their experience and the things that they've seen. So Mike and Ann, if you guys would just come. Thanks, Ken. Um, I start by saying that, that we don't feel like giants of anything. Um, the, uh, and we feel uh, loved and supported here at, here at Antioch. Um, as, as Ken was praying uh, to start today, um, he said something about the, the, the separation between the sacred and the secular is not real. Um, and just having lived in Africa now for two years, we see that every day, that... Um, the, the, the curtains kind of pulled away, and the, the divisions between, between the natural and the supernatural, the sacred and the secular, are kind of gone. And we see that a lot, and we see the power of prayer. Um, we love being there. We rejoice in being called there. Um, but as Ken said, there are, there are difficult days um, there. And when we're having difficult days, um, our daily bread is prayer. And, and we know there's a lot of people here at Antioch who pray for us. And we, we get emails and we uh, have conversations when we come back and we know. And I actually uh, can also mention secular or uh, sacred space. And I, I will sometimes, when I'm having a rough day, literally envision this space that we're in right now and the worship team up here and people praying and people loving God. And, and that's what gets us through. It's literally daily bread. And, and it makes me, where we live uh, in Kenya... Um, to go to church, you have to pass through a cordon of guys with machine guns. Um, to, there were places this uh, Good Friday passed. I spent time in a place where you can't be a Christian, and we celebrated Good Friday uh, huddled in a house, word of mouth. Every Christian from around came and, and prayed together on Good Friday. And it makes me realize that prayer is so powerful that it's dangerous to people. It's dangerous to other people. Um, it Prayer becomes very real uh, when you see places where, where prayer is, is not allowed. Um, and it makes me realize how fragile the church is. Um, and uh, not just the church in Kenya or in neighboring countries around Kenya, but even the church in America. And, we, and I just, I beg of you to, in your lives, 
find a church and orient your life towards that church. It's so precious, it's so sacred that it's viewed as dangerous in many places. Um, Ken asked us to share some stories uh, about the power of prayer that we'd seen uh, in Kenya, and I wanted to share a story uh, about a patient. Uh, the patient's name is Ben, Ben Moyer, uh, and I met him in the clinic. He's an 18-year-old boy uh, who came in alone, uh, no family, and it took him a 10-hour bus ride to get to my hospital, Kajabi Hospital, uh, from the coast area where he lived. He came from a really poor family, a dysfunctional family, alcoholic father, uh, tough upbringing. Um, and he came because he had a tumor in his leg, in his thigh. Um, it was almost that his leg had become a tumor. It was so big and so painful. And I talked to him, and he'd had this biopsied when he was 12, and he'd had it biopsied when he was 16. And, and both times it had come back as non-cancerous. Um, and his family had never been able to raise the money and, and get him arranged where he could have this taken out. Um, and we looked at this tumor now in his leg and looked at the x-rays, et cetera, and it looked very much as if it had turned cancerous in that period of time. Um, we got him admitted to the hospital. We found funding for him and took out the tumor. Uh, and in fact, it came back as a very dangerous form of cancer called a sarcoma um, and maybe had been all the time. Um, so I had to go to Ben's bedside uh, and give him this news and say, Ben, this is a cancer. It's a bad type of a cancer. As far as we can tell, it hasn't spread yet. But the only, uh, the only treatment, the only cure is an amputation at the hip. This is an, he had turned 19 in the hospital by now. This is a young boy. He's single in a country where disability is viewed in a spiritual way as a curse. Um, and Ben just shut down. Uh, he wouldn't talk. We would pray with him at the bedside, and he would just turn away. And he wouldn't talk with us. He wouldn't talk with the chaplaincy team. Um, I had noticed, and Ann had, I had talked to Ann about the fact that Ben had only one piece of clothing, uh, except for his little trousers. He had a sweater, and it had lots of holes in it. Um, and I had talked to Ann about this, and it's kind of cold at Kajabi. Um, and Ann had set aside uh, one of these Justice Conference sweatshirts for him uh, uh, to keep him warm. And I, I went to pray again with Ben one day, I should say Ben's last name is Moyer. Uh, Moyer is, is his name, but it's also a, a Kenyan uh, outcry of grief. Uh, there's not a translation for it. But he was actually named after an outcry of grief, which I think uh, is appropriate in, in his life. So I went and I prayed again with Ben, and I was holding his hand, uh, and I was looking at this, swe this sweater that he had on that was just awful. I noticed there was, there was a demon embroidered on his heart. Uh, just over his heart on the sweater. I'm not a superstitious guy, but it really bothered me. And I mentioned this to some of the trainees that work in the hospital. I said, he's got a demon over his heart. What do you think of that? They said, no, he comes from an area that's known for demon worship. And uh, kind of a bell went off. And uh, uh, I talked to Ann about this. We called the chaplaincy team. We brought the sweatshirt over, the Justice Conference sweatshirt. I said, Ben, you have to give me that, that sweater that you have on. You can't have it anymore. You're going to wear this. Uh, and he was delighted. Um, and the chaplaincy team came. We got him the sweatshirt. We prayed over him. We prayed over him. We prayed over him. And like that, that was broken. He said, he turned to me and he said, I want to have the surgery. I want to live. Prayer broke it in that instant. 
we see that we see that in Kenya all the time. The difference between life and death sometimes is prayer. So I want to tell a story about Esther. Um, and I think Ken also mentioned this, we pray with our, from our own perspectives and sometimes what we pray for um, isn't answered in the way that we would want or expect, but how God's perspective is the only thing that we can trust in. Um, the next picture, Ben, is a picture of Esther. Um, so when you live in Kenya, um, even um, Kenyans who have jobs, they hire um, house help. And so when we moved into our house, um, Esther came to work with us. Um, it would not be um, considered appropriate for us not to employ somebody from the village. So this is Esther, and she's 38-year-old, and um, her greatest desire was to get married, was to find a husband and to have a baby. And she had had all kinds of gynecological problems, and um, she said, Anne, I want to meet somebody. I want to have a baby of my own. And we prayed together, we prayed often, and she met this wonderful man. And against all odds, really, a few months later, she became pregnant. And it was a joyous occasion, and we prayed over that baby um, in her womb so many times. And she was just ecstatic at this new life coming into being. And the time came for her to give birth to her baby, and our friend who's a pediatrician at the hospital, another American missionary, um, she called me, she said, Esther has given birth, she said, but her baby has Down syndrome. And to understand the magnitude of this, um, you don't often see kids with disabilities in Kenya because they are very often considered cursed and they are kept away and they are kept hidden and they are not welcomed into society, They're not, they don't go to school. Um, and the next picture shows this precious baby and he was going to be named John. And when Esther found out that he had significant um, problems, she called him Michael after our son. Our son, Michael, who's nine, has type one diabetes. And she, Esther, had seen how the power of prayer in Michael's life has literally changed his, his circumstances and how God gives us strength to be able to care for him. And so she called her baby, baby Michael. And when he was born, she was absolutely devastated. She sat in the bed. She said, my husband is going to leave me. My husband is going to leave me. I cannot look after this baby. This baby is a curse. And she sat in bed and she wouldn't hold her, she wouldn't look at her baby. She hadn't seen her baby. So our friend Jennifer, the missionary, called me the next morning. She said, Anne, she said, come into the nursery. I want you to take this baby. I want you to hold that baby and I want you to bring baby Michael in to see his mother. I said, I can't hold her baby before her. She said, you've got to. And so I picked up baby Michael and brought her in, and she sat there, and the tears streamed down her face, and she wouldn't even look at him. I said, Esther, he is beautiful. God has given you a beautiful baby. She said, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And at that point, there was a visiting missionary lady, um, and I said, I went to her. She's an older woman in the faith. I said, you've got to help. You've got to come and pray with this woman. And she came and she laid hands on Esther, and we laid hands on that baby. 
And we, we pray for things. It's not always, the answer is not always what we expect. But God in his sovereignty is bigger and able and gets the entire picture. And we have to trust in his provision. The next day, um, the next morning, I went into the hospital and... Esther is sitting with her baby in that nursery in the NICU, and she's expressing milk, and she's feeding him with a little syringe every two hours, the most dedicated mother. And she said, Anne, she said, something broke. Something broke. And um, she said, I'm still not ready to tell my husband because I think he'll leave me. Well, the end of the story is she is the, look at the joy on her face. She could not be happier with her baby, Michael. And she told her husband um, in the end, and he could not be happier with baby Michael. And he comes home from work, which is unusual for a Gukuyu man. He comes home from work, and the first thing he does is he runs in and he scoops up that baby into his arms. And so that story is a story of, I think, Prayers that we pray that don't maybe get answered in the way that we would want them to get answered, but just to hold on, I think, to the trust that God has it. He has all the details, and this mother could not love her baby more. And we just give praise and glory to God for, for every bit of that story. And just for your own prayers, thank you. They sustain us on a daily basis. I cannot, I cannot emphasize that enough. There are times where we've been on our knees, not able to go on, and we know that it is the power of the Holy Spirit through your prayers that sustain us. So thank you so much. So we talked about, in some sense, resending and recommissioning Mike and Anne, and let me just ask real quick, um, how can, how can people that are really desirous of, of journeying with you and standing with you, um, what's the best way for them to stay uh, up to speed, to, to be connected, et cetera? Um, so even though we left, we still very much feel a part of Antioch Church, and we love your emails. We love when you look at our blog and stay in touch with us. Um, so our blog address is marasafari.org, M-A-R-A, safari.org. And uh, we try to update that fairly regularly, and you can message us through that. Uh, and I just think it, it feels great to us to know that we're still a part of the community and uh, that, uh, that we're in your prayers. Sure. And, uh, and maybe just if there's one specific prayer request as you guys are transitioning back that we can keep in prayer, what would that be? Yeah, I think the, um, the last two years have really, <clears throat> I think, burnt Mike out, especially just given the volume of work, the never-ending um, patience, the never-ending need, the overwhelming situations. And I think we really need prayer on how we're going to return and do missions in a sustainable way so that um, the work doesn't completely overwhelm him and that he has time with the kids as a family. So somehow to make the, 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 our, our, our mission there sustainable. Sure. Uh, so most people avoid talking about this, but one of the reasons people come back from the field is to, to keep relationships up, but also to replace donors and, and um, backers that have fallen away for whatever reason to keep the mission funded. Um, is there a, a need there that we can be aware of? Uh, yeah, there is. There's always a natural attrition rate as people's uh, life situation 
uh, changes, etc. And so there's always, uh, we always, I think God intends it this way, but, but uh, we are, receive all our financial sustenance through, through donors, through our mission agency, which is called Surge, S-E-R-G-E. Uh, and I think you're supposed to just kind of always just fly under the radar financially. You're just always almost getting by, barely getting by. And so we've, we've, we're almost landing <laughs> right now. I'd say we're not necessarily flying too high. So um, you could talk to us afterwards if you feel um, that you wish to come alongside us in our ministry. We can tell you more about what we're doing over there and how you can support us financially. The vast majority of our support comes through small monthly donations. We have more than 100 different families and churches that support us, just small donations every month. Very cool. So you guys will be in the commons afterwards? or Okay. If you guys would do me a favor and maybe just stand. Um, I'm going to pray over Mike and Ann um, just as we kind of send them back. But if we can, to the best of our ability, make this a joint prayer um, in the Berkeley Apostolic Church. Um, they had a thing, I don't even know that I could remember it well enough, but they said throw a right hand at somebody in prayer or something like that. Um, it's a, a way of physically showing and getting involved. I'm not asking you to throw a right hand, but I would love for us to join and make this a community praying for, for two people we love who are serving. So uh, if we can. Uh, dear Father, we thank you for our friends. We thank you for the blessing they've been to us through friendship, as they've taught us, as we've watched them walk, as we've learned. We also just thank you for them as they're a challenge to us and an extension of us, an opportunity uh, for this community and this body to be a part of what you're doing in places around the world. We rejoice with the joys that they've had uh, we grieve along with the difficult things that they are and have experienced. And I pray that you would prick us or break us in a new way, that we would be, be tender enough, sensitive enough, um, hungry enough to come alongside them and to support them well as they're out there alone in a small community uh, with limited friendships, working hours that that just are, are difficult and, as Anne said, unsustainable. So we pray for them. We pray for all of us together. May you truly send them back with the power of the Holy Spirit, with energy, with uh, a new spirit. And, and would you send us with them as a community that is vitally connected to the work that they're involved in. We, we desperately pray that. Um, knowing that only you can sustain that. It's easy to say here on a Sunday morning in the summer of Bend, um, but that it would somehow continue six months from now on the receiving end in Kajabi, Kenya. That you would just really truly bless and open up this channel of support and love and encouragement. We ask that in the precious and powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.